we're back in the Sermon on the Mount this morning, uh, and we've come to a passage that I'm guessing is uh, relatively familiar to you. <clears throat> uh, turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. These phrases you've heard before, uh, phrases maybe you've used this week. Uh, they, they are uh, widely used in the English language today. Um, they've been quoted by the likes of Martin Luther King Jr., Gandhi, Leo Tolstoy, Malcolm X, Hillary Clinton, Bruce Lee, Kenny Rogers, Steve uh, Jobs, and uh, of course, Selena Gomez. Uh, some openly mock Jesus' statement and teaching. Some embrace it, uh, some totally misunderstand it. Uh, But whatever it means, uh, would you agree it's important for us to understand it? Whatever it means, it's important that we as Christians understand it. So if you have your Bible, uh, you can open up with me to Matthew 5 in verse 38, and I'll read, and you can follow along with me. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Lord, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. Glorify your name. Exalt your Son, Jesus Christ. Cause us again to rest in Him, to be transformed by the grace of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. After C.S. Lewis was converted, someone asked him, how do you like the Sermon on the Mount? Do you you care for it? And he replied, if you mean, do I enjoy it? He said, I suppose no one enjoys it. For who can enjoy being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than the man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. You see, Jesus' sermon here it isn't just some tame moral pep talk. These are words that change everything. They are words that, that only make sense from the perspective of heaven. Uh, they are words that are utterly ridiculous to the world, if you understand them. So many want to say things like, Jesus was a good teacher. He said some helpful things, you know, some things we should follow. But that just shows a person who's never really grappled with what he said. Nevertheless, you know that these verses and these phrases are widely used, misused, and abused. So their meaning has been obscured, and, and many folks miss what Jesus is really trying to say here. You know, he's not trying to make a a point about uh, self-defense. He's not trying to make a point about pacifism. Uh, He's not trying to give you his set of life hacks uh, to help you get ahead in life. No, Jesus' point is infinitely more profound than that. Against the, the backdrop of a world in darkness because of sin... He is continuing to paint a picture 
of what life in the kingdom looks like. And as he paints, he calls us and invites us into that life through the gospel. Uh, This morning in our text we find that this life, this kingdom life, is marked by a selfless, sacrificial service. The life in the kingdom is marked by a selfless, sacrificial service. That's what life in the kingdom looks like. It's what it sounds like. It's what it smells like. It's what it feels like. And in in a world that celebrates and exalts the self, perhaps more than anything, God's people live lives of utter selflessness, sacrifice for the good of others. Jesus' words are utter, utterly countercultural and, and subversive and intended to undermine our own hearts, which constantly tempt us to exalt ourselves. Do, do you know that temptation? You'll feel that temptation? Now, Jesus would say to us, the way of self is the way of despair. But, There is another way that he shows us. So what I want you to see this morning in this passage, if we can make our way through all of the uh, gobbledygook that people just put onto these phrases, uh, what I want you to see is the life of self, the death of self, self, and how the self dies. The life of self, the death of self, and how the self dies. Let's consider the life of self. Remember what Jesus is doing here. Uh, He's correcting the misunderstanding of uh, the religious leaders uh, as they misunderstand and misapply God's law. He says, you've heard it said, right? We've heard this phrase, you've heard it said. Uh, And now he he quotes the the Old Testament, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is a a direct quote from Exodus. Uh, you, You find it in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. It appears in a number of places. Um, and and this, this law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it's a law that actually functions a lot like Moses allowing for divorce. Do you remember a couple weeks ago we talked about uh, this idea that Moses allowed for a certificate of divorce? It functions a lot like that. When, when uh, Jesus says uh, that Moses allowed for, for a husband to give his wife a certificate of divorce because of the hardness of their heart and because of sin, and so it is here. In, in our sin, our knee-jerk reaction to being wronged is not justice. It's revenge. That our knee-jerk reaction when we are wronged is not justice, it's revenge. Now, pe- people dog on eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth like it's some you know, barbaric standard, but really this is God's way of curbing the human impulse for revenge in order to promote justice. Now, the idea is if you know, your neighbor knocks your eye out, you can't turn around and knock his head off. Right? There needs to be a proportionate and just response that is equal to the offense. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's a principle. And just a word, this is not in my notes, but just, just a word of... Uh, um, instruction and and caution as we read, right? Jesus is in a moment, and we're going to talk about these four illustrations, and sometimes we can be tempted to absolutize them, right? To make them these absolutes that that are to be applied in every single scenario. You need to resist that, right? Jesus is, is communicating to us principles that should guide life in the kingdom, that will require wisdom to apply them. There's a little preface. So there needs an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. There needs to be a proportionate and just response. However, by, by Jesus' day, okay, remember we're talking about these antitheses. Jesus is correcting the misapplication. By Jesus' day, the Jews and especially the religious leaders had begun abusing this legal principle to selfishly justify their pursuit of personal vengeance, personal reprisals that under the law should have been dealt with by the courts were taken up by these so-called religious leaders and justified under the banner of an eye for an eye. Now, we don't say 
uh, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. Like, that's not what we say. We say things like, well, that's what you get. Or we say, uh, what goes around comes around. Serves you right. Like, that's what we say. But usually, if we're honest, what, what, what comes around, though, if it's up to us, is not justice. It's something far worse. Uh, I read a story this week. Uh, it actually was just happened, I think, recently, the last week or two. It's a woman in Long Island who got a call from her son. Uh, her son had been beaten up by some bullies at school. He's in high school. He's 16. Got beaten up by some bullies. Had his shoes stolen and left on the side of the road. He calls his mom in tears. It's terrible. Awful. So the mom comes and picks up her son. And she figures out where the bullies are. She runs one over in her car. That's an extreme example, but, but that's the knee-jerk reaction of our souls, isn't it? If someone offends me, someone humiliates me, someone hurts me, they're going to pay for it. I'm going to make sure of it. They're going to pay dearly. But look what Jesus says. And, and this is why I'm keying in on the idea of self. He says, do not resist the one who is evil. Do not resist the one who is evil. In other words, don't oppose the bad person. Now, this isn't a call to ignore evil. It's not what Jesus is saying. There are many places in Scripture that call us to do just that. Uh, no, given the, the Old Testament backdrop of the word uh, of what's happening here and the eye for an eye and tooth for, for a tooth, the word resist here has a legal sense. So that Jesus is meaning something like this. Do not insist on your own rights against your opponent before the courts. Do not resist the one who is evil. Let go of your rights. Let go of yourself for the sake of your enemy. As some have taken Jesus' words here to mean Christians should be pacifists. Leo Tolstoy famously believed that Jesus here outlawed policemen and soldiers because it was their job to resist evil. But no, what Jesus is after is far more subversive than getting rid of policemen. Jesus is calling his people to respond to an evil person in a way that is not out for self, that does not demand payment for damages, that does not insist on restitution, that isn't all about making sure I get mine and they get theirs. He's describing a life that is thoroughly characterized by a sacrificial selfishness, uh, selflessness for the good of others, even the one who is evil. Now, I'm guessing that already this is rubbing some of you the wrong way. You think, that doesn't sound fair. You're like, where's the justice in that? The first thing is uh, take it up with Jesus. You know, these are, these are his words. They're, they're not mine. But second, I, I want you to hold on to that sense for a moment. That feeling of where's the justice? This isn't fair. I'm going to come back there in a moment. Before I do, though, let, remi- let me remind you this morning that, that our commitment to and our pursuit of the self is at the very center of what has gone wrong in our hearts. When Isaiah wants to describe the nature of our sinful condition before God, he says, 
we all like sheep have gone astray and every one of us has turned to go what? Our own way. To go our own way. Self. Uh, in the 5th century, uh, St. Augustine wrote his famous work, The City of God. Uh, has anyone ever read that? If you've read that, hats off to you. It's a, it's a, it's a significant volume. Uh, in The City of God, he compares two cities or two kingdoms, the earthly city and the heavenly city, the city of man and the city of God. And here's how he describes the difference between those two cities. This is what he says. He says, accordingly, two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glories in itself, the latter in the Lord. You hear what he's saying? At the core of what makes the city of God, the city of God, is a love for God and a contempt for self. And at the core of what makes the city of man, the city of man, is a love for self and a contempt for God. You see, for Augustine, at the very core of what characterizes the city of man is that Latin phrase, you ever heard this? Homo and curvatus in se. The human being turned in on itself. The human being bent in on itself. This is the source of all our trouble, the cause of all our pain, the reason the world is so broken. And, uh, you know, I... I, I, don't, I don't really have to convince you of this. You, you know, you just look around, right? If you just open up your eyes, you will see what happens in people's lives and in their hearts when they just live for themselves. Like, have you ever met someone? I mean, okay, I'm going to modify this question. I, here's what I'm going to ask you. Have you ever met someone that was really, really selfish? Uh, what I was going to say is, if you say no, then you're lying because you just look in the mirror, right? Like, we, we, we all are that person, right? But I'm saying, have you met someone that you, you, you just know that they're living for self? Can I ask you, uh, do they strike you as someone who was happy? Strike you as someone who was at peace? Someone who was content in their life? Or were they restless? Anxious, joyless, afraid. Take a look at your own heart and you'll see what self-centeredness does. It's a, it's a cancer. It's a poison to the soul. Nothing cuts us off more completely from the knowledge and experience of God than the, than the pursuit of self. The old 19th century theologian J.R. Miller has it right when he said, the one who does not cease to live for self, self ceases to live at all. Jesus came to bring life, and the life of self is not life at all. It's death. And Jesus comes by this sermon and says, real life will be found. Listen, you've heard Jesus say this. Real life will be found when self dies. What does Jesus say? The one who will... The one who seeks to save his life will lose it. But the one who loses his life for my sake will find it. The life of self is disaster. The life of self, self is destruction and death. That's the life of self. Let's, let's, let's consider the death of self. Uh, Jesus in this passage is going to illustrate uh, the death of self with four scenarios, and they all sort of build on one another. The question is, uh, what are they building towards? Um, is this, I want you to see the big picture here. Is this, is this Jesus' instruction about not seeking revenge? Yes. Does he instruct us on serving even our opponents? Absolutely. Does Jesus begin to teach us about generosity? Yes, of course. But what I want you to, to look for as we see these different illustrations is the thread that runs through each one of them. What is Jesus saying? It seems to me that what he's saying is that the self must die. The self must die. 
the proclivity of my heart to turn in on itself needs to be put to death. Look, look at the first scenario. Verse 39. He says, But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. The first thing you need to understand is that this verse isn't about physical violence. I mean, there is a, you know, a violence in slapping someone, but this is not what it's about. It's about insult. What's in view here is an open-handed slap, and the fact that Jesus specifies the right cheek means it's a backhanded slap. So if you just imagine yourself standing across from someone, most people are right-handed, there's assuming a right-handed. So in order to slap someone across the right cheek, you have to do one of these. It's a backhand. And in Jesus' day, a backhanded slap across the face was one of the uh, most insulting, humiliating things that you could do to another person. Uh, So insulting, in fact, that you could actually press charges against someone. uh, It would be commensurate to you, like, suing someone for defamation, like a libel case. But Jesus says, if someone pays you this great insult, if someone humiliates you, if someone belittles you, if someone insults you in this way, turn the other cheek. What is that? First off, he's saying that you need to be willing to endure insult. You need to be able to absorb, even embrace insult. To endure insult without standing on your rights to oppose the person before a judge. Be willing to endure insult. But not only that, uh, to turn the other cheek. In other words, right then and there, this is what I think is, is at the bottom of turn the other cheek. Right then and there, to be willing to extend forgiveness and leave open the possibility of restoration. That is completely countercultural, completely against our knee jerk reaction in the flesh. Right? Someone insults you, your knee jerk reaction is, I'm going to give it right back to you and I'm going to give it back to you even harder. But Jesus said, No, you need to not be only willing to endure insult. But to right then and there extend forgiveness and leave the door open for the possibility of restoration. Think about it. Um, Think about the cheek. The cheek is an intimate place. When you greet a coworker or a neighbor, you shake their hand. But when you greet family, you give a kiss on the cheek. And you only give a kiss on the cheek with people that you are very close with, with, with the closest of friends. To, ter- to turn the cheek is not only to absorb the insult, but it's, it's to immediately say to the person that slapped you, I still want your friendship. I'm still open. I'm still willing. I'm still here. The other cheek is turned in hopes of bringing the person to their senses. Right? That they might see the sin of their insult and repent and that there would be restoration. I, the example that came to mind was, uh, because I, I suppose I'm just in the thick of it, is, is parenting and children. Parents, when you tell your children no, you know, they ask you to do something and you say no, and they stomp off hurling insults at you. You don't love me. You're the worst mom ever. I wish I had a different dad. You can return those insults with insults of your own, Or you can absorb those insults and then communicate with your words and actions. You may hate me right now, but I still love you. And when you do that, what are you hoping will happen? What you're hoping will happen is that your love will break through their hatred and their irrationality and will bring them to their senses so that they say, 
I didn't mean that. I'm sorry. I was just upset that I wasn't getting my way. You, you see, to turn the other cheek is, is to be willing to endure insult and offense for the good of the other person. It is a laying down of self and your rights to pursue the good of the person who is so filled with hate and anger that it's exploding all over you. Brother and sisters, how do you respond when you are insulted? How do you respond when you are mischaracterized or belittled or even humiliated? Is it, is it vengeance that rises up or a willingness to endure the insult and even to extend forgiveness in hopes of restoration for the good of the one insulting you? You see, Jesus' whole point in turning the cheek is that forgiveness is dangerous. Do you ever feel that? Forgiveness is dangerous. Leaving the door open for restoration is incredibly dangerous because you never know. You may turn the other cheek and they may slap that one too. And turning the other cheek, you are leaving open the possibility of restoration, but you are also leaving open the possibility of being hurt again. But Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Die to self. Lay down your rights and pursue the good of your opponent. Okay, that's scenario number one. Turn the other cheek. Here's scenario number two. Verse 40. He says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. In the ancient world, every person had an inalienable right to their cloak. It it kept you warm, and it often actually served as bedding. It was what you would lay down on a mat and sleep on it, keep you warm in the night. And so you you couldn't ask someone for their cloak. Maybe you could lend it for an hour or two, uh, but a cloak was, you had this, it couldn't be taken from you. You had an inalienable right to it. In this verse, Jesus supposes someone is being sued for their tunic. It's a highly uh, unlikely scenario where someone is, is uh, suing someone to take their outer garments, but Jesus is establishing a principle. Um, and again, he's saying we need to be willing to lay down our rights for the good of others. If someone would try to deprive you of something that legally belongs to you, give it to them. But not only give it to them, give them also your cloak. It's, it's an act of utter selflessness, do you see? It's an act of selflessness. I, I read another story this week. Uh, in 2008, there was a social worker named Julio Diaz. Uh, he got off the subway in the Bronx like he did every night at his normal stop. And every night he, he ate at the same restaurant. Uh, but on one particular night, uh, he was held up by a boy Uh, a teenager with a knife. It was apparent that the boy wanted his money, and so he, you know, pulled out his wallet, and and he gave it to him, and as the boy started to scurry off, he he yelled at him, and he said, uh, he said, hey, uh, if if you're going to be out here robbing people all night, uh, let me give you my coat so you don't get cold. Boy's confused, taken aback, and as he comes over and the, as Julio comes over and begins to take his coat off and, and put it on the boy, uh, the boy is like, what are you doing here? What's happening? And Julio replied to him, uh, if you're willing to risk your freedom for a few dollars, then I guess you must really need the money. And all I was trying to do was, was get some dinner. And hey, uh, if you want, that's right around the corner, uh, you could join me. The boy reluctantly sat down with him for dinner, and uh, when the bill came, Julio said to the boy, uh, you have my wallet, so either you're going to have to pay, or you can give me my wallet back and I'll happily pay for your dinner. The boy handed over his wallet without even thinking about it. Julio handed him another $20, and he said, there's one more thing that you need to give to me. I need the knife. The boy just gave up the knife, no questions, and they spent the rest of the evening talking about his life and how he got there and what his plans were and what he saw for himself in the future. 
Jesus' call is to a selfless surrendering of one's own rights for the good of others. A surrendering of one's own agenda, one's own safety. Let me ask you, what would you give up to pursue the good of another? What what would you let go of for an opportunity to speak with someone about the gospel? What things, what time, what resources would you be willing to part with for an opportunity to sit down with someone and tell them about God's grace in Jesus Christ? Scenario number three, verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Here Jesus moves beyond the question of retaliation. In Jesus' day, Judea was a province of Rome occupied by Roman soldiers. According to Roman law, a soldier could temporarily recruit any Jew into their service to carry materials for up to a thousand paces, which is roughly a mile. We actually have an example of this uh, in Simon of Cyrene. You remember Simon of Cyrene? The end of Luke's gospel, he's uh, basically taken into custody by the Roman soldiers and forced to carry Jesus' cross. This policy was a humiliating reminder that the Jews were a subjugated people that the Romans ruled over them and in many respects could do with them as they please. But Jesus says, in the event that you are forced by an enemy into temporary service, help your opponent carry his materials. But not just for a mile. Don't just carry the, the materials for one mile. Go with him an extra mile. Now, you see what I'm saying? This isn't Jesus' strategy for how to get ahead in life. We talk about the extra mile. We're like, you really want to move up in the company? This is what you got to do. This is not Jesus' strategy for how to move up in your company. This is Jesus calling his people to lay down self, to die to self, to willingly inconvenience yourself for the good of another, even your enemy. And you have to know, the Roman soldiers weren't waiting around for volunteers. They weren't like, hey, I've got a bunch of materials. Can I get a hand raise if anyone's willing to carry this for me? No, they are just recruit, coercing by force people into service. You, we're going a mile. And, you know, think, if, you, if you're the Jew in this situation, maybe you're in the middle of your work day. You've got, like, a deadline to meet. Your family's depending on you. But now, all of a sudden, you know, this soldier comes crashing through your day and you're now walking an, a mile to carry his goods and Jesus says no you're not walk an extra mile go with him an extra mile you see the kind of selflessness Jesus is calling us to here a sacrificial willingness to be inconvenienced and not to be inconvenienced by people we love like I get annoyed when people I really care about inconvenience me when my kids inconvenience me I'm like seriously you kidding me? And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. The, the call here is to, to, to willingly and cheerfully inconvenience yourself for the good of people who might even hate you, who look down on you, who want to humiliate you. Scenario number four, verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Again, Jesus moves beyond retaliation and even beyond a willingness to be inconvenienced. Here is his straightforward call to a revolutionary kind of generosity. He says, when you are confronted with need, move toward it. When you see lack, run toward it with the the desire and the intent to fill that lack. Perhaps one of the greatest illustrations of this is Jesus' parable, the Good Samaritan. In Luke 10, you remember that parable? A Jewish man is robbed and beaten and left on the side of the road. And after a priest and a Levite turn a blind eye, a Samaritan man sees him. That uh, half-breed Samaritan dog 
as the Jews would have considered him, stops. And this is significant not only because it's an indictment against the Levite and the priest, it's significant because the, significant because the man on the side of the road was a, himself a Jew who would most likely have seen the Samaritan man as a dog, as someone beneath him. But the, the Samaritan sees a man who is, uh, by, by all accounts, his enemy. He sees him and, in need, and he does not ignore him or, or walk by or pass by. He moves toward him to help. Uh, the text says, this is Luke 10. You know, I'll just read it to you, 1034. He says he went to him. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. See, all this care was incredibly costly for the Samaritan. Undoubtedly, he was on his way somewhere to do something, but he willingly inconveniences himself he uses his own resources to care for the man, makes provision for his care at an inn. And mind you, a denarius was a day's wage. So he's already given up two days' wages. When's the last time you gave up two days' wages? And not only that, he says to the innkeeper, listen, whatever debt is incurred by this man, I will pay it. Tremendous resources in an effort to care for this person who would have been his enemy. Brothers and sisters, this is a revolutionary kind of generosity that's marked by a genuine and selfless longing to do good to others, even the one who is evil. Do you know, in that text, do you know why Jesus says the Samaritan man stops and moves towards the man on the side of the road? The text says, when he saw him, he had compassion. When he saw him, he had compassion. That word compassion is so rich. It means his heart went out to the man. It means from his very insides, he longed to help. And what I want you to see is, there's, do you see there's no self? There's no self there. The point is, in that moment, there was no thought of himself, but only thought for this man lying half dead on the side of the road. And from that place of selfless compassion, he was willing to sacrifice a significant amount of his own personal resources and time and energy for this man's good. And so you see, life in the kingdom, this is what Jesus is trying to say, life in the kingdom is marked by a selfless and sacrificial service for the good of others. And that life can only be lived... When self dies. That life can only be lived when self dies. So how does the self die? How does the self die? How's the, how, how is the self put to death? You know, you know th- there is a great irony that you have to face when you're trying to be less selfish. And that irony is that the more you think about being less selfish the more you realize you're still thinking about yourself. The personal commitment to be less self-seeking becomes yet another pursuit of self. You've just traded one kind of self-seeking for another. But Christian selflessness is exactly that. It's just that. It's selflessness. Less self. It's less self. It's not self-deprecation, it's not self-degradation, it's not self-flagellation, it's a kind of self-elimination. It's a kind of self-forgetfulness. You know, the, the Good Samaritan was not on some quest to be selfless. He didn't come to this guy on the side of the road and say, here's my opportunity to be selfless. He wasn't thinking about himself at all. That's the point. There was no self. He wasn't thinking about himself. In all these illustrations that Jesus gives, the call is not to think of self, but even in the face of insult, even in the face of insult, to be more concerned for the other person, to be more concerned to make sure this other person has an opportunity to repent and be restored. When someone would take from you, 
to be more concerned for their needs than your own. When even an opponent would inconvenience you to be more concerned about their agenda and their problems than your own. When someone, even an enemy, is in need, not to be concerned at all about what you would have to give up and what it would cost you, but to be concerned that they have everything that they need, that they will not have any lack. You see, it's, it's elimination of self. It's a self-forgetfulness. Okay, now do you see what I'm saying about Jesus' teaching? Do you see what I'm saying when I say how silly it is to think that Jesus has just given us a little moral pep talk here? Do you, do you understand now why, Jesus, uh, why C.S. Lewis comes to this passage and says, I feel like I'm getting flattened by a sledgehammer? Hey, who, who lives like this? Who can live like this? Who wants to live like this? If you're someone that's saying, you know, Jesus is a good teacher who says some nice things, you either haven't understood what he's saying or you've never read it. No one lives like this. No one can live like this. Unless. Unless. Unless by God's grace you come to realize that in all of these illustrations, you are the one who is evil. That you are the beggar. That Jesus is the one who fulfills the law. That Jesus is the one who turns the other cheek. That Jesus is the one who gives his cloak. That Jesus is the one who goes the extra mile. That Jesus is the one that gives to the beggar. Unless you see that you are the one who is evil, but that Jesus, in love, does not set himself against you as your opponent, but sets himself up as your Savior and your friend. You see, Jesus is the one who was insulted and mocked and beaten. You are the one who in your sin and rebellion backhands him across the face. But he does not stand on his rights as the very son of God, as the prince of heaven. You know, as I wrote, when I wrote that sentence, you know what came to my mind? Can you imagine what the angels who spent ages and ages worshiping the Son of God. Can you imagine what they felt when he came into the world and he was insulted and humiliated? When they looked down and they saw Jesus being mocked and derided and scorned and spat upon, can you imagine what they felt? Isaiah tells us in looking forward and prophesying of Jesus, he says, uh, this, is, this is describing Jesus. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. You see, he gave his back. He turned his cheek on the cross. He cried out to the very ones, to the very ones who were actively slaughtering him, to the very ones who were actively crucifying him and killing him. He cries out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Look, look he, he came into the world and laid down his glory. He clothed himself in flesh and in weakness. And for our sin, he was stripped naked and hung on a cross. Why? Why? So that he could place the cloak of his righteousness upon you. While you were stripping him of his dignity and his life, he was clothing you with righteousness and eternal life. And don't you see how far, don't you see how far he was willing to go for you? Don't you see that he was willing to descend down into the world, a world full of darkness and sin, that he was willing to come in flesh, that he's willing to become a man and come down into the, 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 the trash can of sin that is this world to walk among you, to walk among us, to, to, 
to sympathize and empathize with us. And, 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 and don't you know that he didn't stop there? He didn't go one mile only. He went even further down into the earth. He suffered our hell, our punishment, our judgment for lives of self-obsession and self-centeredness fell upon him and he died in our place and went down into the grave. And can't you see that you are the beggar on the side of the road? Can't you see you are the one with no spiritual resources? But, but, but then when Jesus saw you, his enemy, make no mistake, when Jesus saw you, you were his enemy, and nevertheless, his heart went out to you. Jesus had compassion. His insides were stirred up within him, and he could not help but move towards your need. In love and in kindness and in grace and in mercy, he was filled with compassion and love. His heart wasn't on himself, but was on you. And in a love that came from the depths of his own heart and from his very guts, he impoverished himself. On the cross, he became utterly poor, spent all his resources, was cursed by God so that you could receive his riches and his blessing. So that you could be counted God's children and heirs of the kingdom. Jeremy prayed this earlier. Philippians 2, 4 says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The question of how, do, how does the self die, it's right there in those uh, three words. In Christ Jesus. How do you have this mind of looking to others' interests, counting others' interests more significant than yourselves? You have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Now listen, I told you to pocket a little question. Where's the justice? Remember that question? You see, when I tell you that you are children of God, that you are heirs of the kingdom, that you are righteous in God's sight, the question that should cry out in your heart is, how is that fair? How is that just? How can God look upon you and say, righteous? And the answer is Christ. The answer is Christ's sufficient work, his life and his death and his resurrection. And when you feel the weight of that question, when you feel the weight of by rights, according to God's justice, apart from his grace, apart from the working of Christ, I should receive judgment. I should receive punishment. I should receive hell. But because of his grace in Christ, what I get is blessing. What I, guess is, what I get is sonship. What I get is eternity with him. Then all of a sudden it becomes impossible in those situations when you are confronted with an enemy, when you are confronted with an opponent, when you are confronted with a beggar to go, well, this isn't fair. Because you see yourself in that person. You see yourself as the beggar. Do you see? You see yourself as the evil person. You see yourself as the one who is only here because of God's grace and kindness. Only because of his compassion. When you see yourself as the rightful object of God's wrath, who should be crushed into the dust forever, but instead you have been raised to the skies by his love, seated with him and declared a child and a friend. And you ask yourself, Where's the justice? How is this fair? You see, it's because of Christ, his life, 
his death, his resurrection. For now, because of Christ, justice demands your salvation. You know that? Now, because of Christ, justice demands your salvation. How does the self die so that you move towards even the one who is evil with kindness and love for their good? When you see that you were the evil one, when you see that God in Christ moved towards you in kindness and love, it's when you see Jesus moving towards you in compassion, laying down his life in complete selflessness, that's when the self dies. It's seeing Christ lay down his life for you that compels you to lay down your life for him and for others. The life of self is deadly. And the only way to truly live is to put self to death. This is the life of the kingdom. And it only comes when you live in the reality of Christ laying down his life for your eternal good. Life in the kingdom is marked by a a selfless, sacrificial service. Because, listen, life in the kingdom, it's marked by a selfless, sacrificial service because that kingdom is ruled by a king who selflessly sacrificed everything for the good of his people. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we, we do pray that you would make us these kinds of people that, that represent the king. Make us selfless people who, who move out towards others in their need, who are willing to endure and bear insult, even for the good of others. Make us people who are, are willing to be inconvenienced, who are willing to, to not stand on our own rights, but to make sure that others are cared for because we know the way in which you have cared for us, because we know the way in which you have moved towards us when we were nothing, we had nothing, we were, we were beggars on the side of the road, dead in our sins, and yet you loved us. In Christ, you moved towards us in compassion and kindness and made us your own children and seated us beside you and, and placed on us a cloak, a robe of righteousness. Lord, cause us to live in a way that, that points to the grace that there is in Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.